Herzog was paroled from prison on the 18th of September 2010 after serving a reduced 14-year sentence. Under California law, parolees returned to the county where they were last legally resident prior to their conviction. For Herzog, this was San Joaquin County. Of course, nobody in the area wanted him back there. Here is an extract from a letter to Governor Schwarzenegger from Dan Logue, Assembly Member District 3, and Kathleen Galgiani, Assembly Maker District 17. Quote, Dear Governor Schwarzenegger, we are writing to thank you for your consideration of paroling convicted serial killer Lauren Herzog on prison grounds instead of placing him within the general community. However, we are now asking that he either be moved to prison grounds within an urban county or confined strictly to prison grounds prohibited from leaving prison property. Lauren Herzog is notorious for bragging about being able to make people disappear. Herzog was originally charged with the murders of both Cindy van der Heiden in 1998 and Chevy Wheeler in 1985, along with four other murders. The bodies of Cindy van der Heiden and Chevy Wheeler have never been recovered. Prosecutors believe Shermantine and Herzog could be responsible for as many as 22 other murders, dumping the bodies into mine shafts in the foothills and remote hillsides, and burying bodies underneath a trailer park. There are 26,000 known mine shafts in Calaveras County alone. Herzog should not be allowed to move around freely within a rural area hidden from public view, where any potential future murder could be committed quietly and where Herzog could easily dispose of remains and make people disappear, as he has done in the cases of both Cindy and Chevy, and possibly countless others. In reference to the disappearance of Cindy van der Heiden, an August the 14th, 1999 Stockton Record article made reference to Lauren Herzog boasting of knowing just the place to dump dead bodies. The law stipulates that victims and their family members can ensure that parolees live at least 35 miles from their residence. A number of requests were made by people within the county. These requests, plus the letter to Governor Schwarzenegger, meant that San Joaquin County was no longer an option for Herzog. Herzog was released to a small fifth-wheel trailer inside the High Desert State Prison Grounds in Lassen County, around 200 miles from Stockton. As you can imagine, the people in Lassen County were none too pleased to have him placed in their vicinity. However, a number of safety measures and conditions were put into place to protect them. First, he was required to wear a GPD tracker on his ankle. This was monitored 24 hours a day 
and alerted his parole officer if he went more than 100 feet from his trailer. Second, he could not leave his trailer between the hours of 8.30 p.m. and 5.30 a.m. or from 1.30 p.m. to 3.30 p.m. And third, he and any visitors that he had had to be checked in and out with the gatehouse operator. Due to the restrictions on his parole, Herzog was unable to work, so while he was out of prison, he was still under the watchful eye of the prison authorities. He mainly spent his days isolated and alone in the trailer. We asked him, Cindy Vanderheiden's sister, how the family coped when Herzog was released. Oh, I was not real thrilled. (laughs) And I lived in Wyoming at the time, and my kids were devastated. I was really worried that he was going to get paroled somewhere where he could come find us or come find Mm. me. I was a little scared. I was a nervous wreck. I was thankful that he was not paroled anywhere and that no county wanted him. Because if he would have been off the prison grounds, I feel that my life and my family's life could have been in danger because I don't think that he was rehabilitated. I think he would have wanted revenge. We then asked her if the family got any support from law enforcement and how she found out he was being released. I did not get no support. I don't know if my parents did. I think I found out about him getting released because I think there was a news thing that came out and uh, I'm pretty sure somebody forgot to call me and tell me that he was getting released. So you found out on the news? So I think, yeah, I think I heard about it on the news. I mean, I knew there was a bunch of court things going on that he was going to be released and I knew that they were having a hard time finding a place for him to go, but I honestly cannot remember if I even got a phone call from the sheriff's department or or anybody saying that there's a possibility. I think it was my parents in the news is where I heard most of it. Being her sister, I was never given the opportunity to receive a lot of phone calls from the investigative team or once he started getting paroled and all that. I think I've gotten maybe two calls or one call from Steve Moore regarding when her remains were found, but the rest has always been from my parents or the media. We also asked if the family had asked that all communication just be done through Kim's parents, or if that was just something law enforcement chose to do. I'm assuming law enforcement just chose to do it. Being, you know, I understand that my parents are alive and maybe they felt that it was their responsibility just to notify them and not the rest of their family members. But if you look at it from my standpoint, they should have notified everybody involved. I, you know, and my parents, bless their hearts, they tried their best to keep me updated, but sometimes, you know, people are forgetful. I'd have to read about it on the news and call them and say, what the heck's going on? We also spoke to Frank, ex-law enforcement, who we introduced in the previous episode about his thoughts on Herzog's release. You know, there was uh, some mistakes in his case, right? Where, for whatever reason, the um, 
the detectives didn't do a very good job putting them away. So they, uh, you know, I should have gave them a lawyer. I mean, most detectives know when you ask for a lawyer, you got to give them one. Uh, it's kind of a basic tenet of the Miranda law. And, and, it, uh, and in a case like this, you kinda, even just you, even mentioning a lawyer, you, you, you would want to get it for You him. would kind of hope that you wouldn't, but, you know, I'm not going to quarterback it. That's what happened. In December 2011, a little over a year after Herzog was released, Sherman Tyne again offered to disclose the location of several victims in exchange for cash. Was he jealous about Herzog being released? Did he just want to try his luck? No one knows, but bounty hunter Leonard Padilla agreed to pay him $33,000 for the information. Just a month later, on January 17, 2012, an agent was alerted when the battery on Herzog's GPS tracker indicated it was low. After numerous attempts to call Herzog to check in, the agent called the staff at High Desert State Prison. The staff arrived at the trailer to find Herzog dead in an apparent suicide. Herzog's suicide note simply said, Tell my family I love them. Tell my family I love them. Bounty hunter Leonard Padilla said he had spoken to Herzog earlier that day and warned him to get a lawyer because Sherman Time was drawing maps to show where they had buried bodies. We asked Leonard what he remembers about that call. Well, I had thought of calling him and talking to him, much like I had Sherman Tyne, but I didn't, I didn't really exactly know what I would be doing. But eventually I got around to where I figured, okay, I want to give him a phone call, see if I can add to my knowledge of the situation. I came up with a phone number where he was, placed the phone call. His wife, she answered the phone, and I started talking to him, told him who I was. And what I wanted then, I decided, was information. And I told him, I says, you know, Wesley has nothing to lose. He's talking to the people at the prison. He's talking to the DA's office, trying to make a better deal for himself than the one he's got right now, which is a death sentence. So he's got nothing to lose. And you are you are a prime subject of a discussion. Now, mm-hmm. some of this was BS. I had no knowledge of anything like that, but that would be a natural road for the DA to take. He uh, basically started talking about Cindy and uh, a few other things. He was easy to talk to. He was not difficult to discuss this subject matter with. And I remember that I told him, I said, look, you're going to need a lawyer. I don't know how well equipped financially you are or any other way, but I can provide that. And uh, you're going to have to lawyer up sooner than later. He then tells us what he thought when he heard that Herzog had died and how he expected to hear from Herzog's family lawyers when they found out he had spoken to Herzog that day. Yeah, I thought it was somebody just pulling my leg because somebody called me early in the morning 
And I thought it was just somebody just yanking my chain. I mean, there's no reason for him to have killed himself. Right. I just knew if that discussion that I had that morning, I can't remember who called me that morning, but if that was true, I could I could see a lawsuit coming down the road. But there was no lawsuit. To this day, I'm not so sure that he's dead. Many people didn't believe that Herzog was actually dead, including Cindy's sister, Kim. I just feel that we have a little bit of a corrupt law enforcement at that time. And anything is possible nowadays. Then you hear about, oh, well, you know, this person can't be paroled, so we're going to move them to another facility or another state. And I can tell you that we have one company here that's a, it's, I don't know if it's a plumbing company. I don't remember what it is, but on the side of their truck, it says Herzog, just so you know. And right after that, I saw a Herzog truck and thought, oh, crap, he got released in Wyoming. But in all reality, he didn't. But it's just kind of funny how you see Herzog all the way around here. Um, yeah. Trucks. In Good. my opinion... I don't know why I thought he wasn't dead. And uh, I guess I just wanted to see proof. I needed proof and visual proof. We asked Frank what he thought when he heard that Herzog had committed suicide. I'll tell you what, at the time, I was interviewed by KCRA 3 when Herzog killed himself. And they asked me, you know, on TV, you know, geez, Frank, what do you, what do you think about Herzog uh, killing himself and I said you know he, he led his life in a way that uh, nobody wanted him and at the end uh, he didn't even want himself and I was kind of I don't know sort of glad I guess that he killed himself to be honest I regretted that that feeling ever since I we would be so much better off we meaning people that are trying to solve some some more of these cases if Herzog was alive the playing Shermantine against Herzog w- was extremely successful. Now, Shermantine gets to be in the position where he's sort of, I mean, he's the grand uh, wizard yeah. who gets to control the narrative because uh, it's really, he's the only guy left with the narrative. When they both were alive, and as Leonard Padilla, who was a, you know, bounty hunter at the time, you know, he was very good at playing them against each other. And, you know, that worked extremely well. I, I'm sh- I'm quite confident that if Herzog was alive today, it wouldn't surprise me if we would have, you know, 15 cases solved already because Herzog and Shermantine would have been so busy pointing the finger at the other one. You know, because that's basically what Shermantine now says is, you know, well, you know, Herzog's boneyard and blah, blah, blah. And it's always, you know, geez, I I might have been there, but, uh, you know, Herzog's the bad guy who did it all. And Herzog was, you know, saying the opposite, but, you know, it was easy to play those two idiots against each other. The autopsy of Lauren Herzog stated that he died due to suicide by hanging on the 17th of January 2012 at approximately 12.30 a.m. It was noted that there were no drugs in his system at the time of his death, that he was still wearing the GPS monitor on his ankle and that he was covered in tattoos. Many of the tattoos on his body were of a satanic nature, such as skulls and flames. 
He also had a number of phrases tattooed on him, including, quote, made and fueled by hate and restrained by reality, end quote, on his left leg, quote, made the devil do it, end quote, on his right foot, and a German phrase that translated literally reads, quote, trace of devastation, end quote. During shelter in place, I started analysing what I was eating and the nutrients my body was getting. It turns out, unsurprisingly, that my diet wasn't good at all and there was lots of room for improvement. So I started looking at what I should be eating and realised that even if I gave my diet a complete overhaul, introduced green smoothies and ate salads every day, I probably wasn't going to get all of the nutrients I need. Let me introduce you to Ritual. I don't want to take eight different vitamins every day and have to monitor what I'm eating to make sure my body is getting what it needs. But with Ritual, you don't need to. You just take two easy to swallow capsules every day. I've been taking Ritual for months now and I've noticed that my energy levels are up, I am less lethargic, and I am generally feeling much better in myself. I mean, there's a long way to go. I'm not ready to run a marathon or anything, but it's definitely a great start. These capsules are especially developed for women and you can tell that a lot of time has gone into the look of the product and the presentation. They come in a clear bottle in a pretty presentation box. The capsules themselves are clear, so you can see exactly what's in them. I'm one of those ladies that loves pretty stationery, and this is the equivalent for me. So what do you need to know? Well, two capsules provide you with nine of the nutrients you need on a daily basis. From D3 to Omega-3, the capsules are gentle on the stomach, and there is a nifty little mint tab in each bottle, which means you don't get that fishy aftertaste that you get from some tablets. They're sugar-free, vegan-friendly, non-GMO, gluten-free and allergen-free, and they're delivered straight to your door on a subscription basis, so you don't need to worry about running out. Better health doesn't happen overnight, and right now Ritual is offering my listeners 10% off during your first three months. Fill in the gaps in your diet with Essential for Women, a small step that helps support a healthy foundation for your body. Visit ritual.com slash foul to start your ritual today. That's 10% off during your first three months at ritual.com slash foul. That's R-I-T-U-A-L dot com slash foul. Foul Play is brought to you by CBD MD. Lately, I've been having trouble getting a full night's sleep. I start thinking about podcast interviews that I've done that day and what I'd still like to say in the next ones that are coming up. I replay crime events over and over in my head, trying to find out if there's a detail about the case that I've overlooked. Before I know it, it's 3 a.m. and I am nowhere near sleep. Everyone talks about how important it is to get a good night's rest, but following that advice can be difficult. That's why the folks at CBDMD created CBDPM to help you get the rest you deserve and feel your best every morning. CBDPM blends sleep-promoting ingredients like melatonin, valerian root, and chamomile with 500 milligrams of high-quality CBD to create a powerful and effective sleep aid. So whether you're up late with kids or pets, you can turn to CBD PM and get the rest you need to handle anything that comes your way. 
One of my favorite things about taking CBD PM is the minty flavor that it has. If you've tried CBD in the past, you'll know that sometimes it has a less than pleasing taste. I'm a huge fan of the CBD Recover Cream. It's a cream that's good for back aches, sore muscles, or for joint pain. And to make it even easier to try CBD PM or any of CBD MD's premium CBD oil products, they're offering all of our listeners 25% off your next order when you use the promo code FOULPLAY at checkout. Once again, that's cbdmd.com, promo code FOULPLAY, one word, for 25% off your purchase of high-quality CBD oil products from CBDMD. We all plan for our futures, don't we? What career we want, our dream house, and of course, the perfect wedding. But what about babies? Are they in your grand plan? Maybe not now, but in the future? Whatever your plans are, knowledge is key. Why not get yourself fertility savvy now? Then you have all the tools you need to make those plans happen. Modern Fertility was created to help you do just that, providing you with an easy and affordable way to test your fertility hormones, all from the comfort of your own home. And all it takes is a simple finger prick. Pop the pack in the mail with the prepaid envelope provided, and you will get personalized results in just 10 days. No visits to your doctor needed, no large medical bills, and if you have an HSA or an FSA, you can use those dollars on Modern Fertility too. I know what you're thinking, there must be a catch. Well, you'd be wrong. As well as being easy to do, it's just $159. And Modern Fertility are giving our listeners an additional $20 off if they use the link modernfertility.com slash foul. So you get to save lots of money from traditional test fees too. The results are in-depth. You get to see how many eggs you have, your hormone levels, and any reproductive red flags. The report tells you what every hormone means, and you get the chance to speak one-to-one with a fertility nurse to review the results and discuss your options. If you want kids today, or maybe one day, you need information to make the decision that's best for you. Right now, Modern Fertility are offering our listeners $20 off the test when you go to modernfertility.com slash foul. That means it will cost you just $139 instead of the hundreds or thousands it could cost a doctor's office. Get $20 off your fertility test when you go to modernfertility.com slash foul. That's modernfertility.com slash foul. What have you got to lose? Rob Dick, a bounty hunter involved with this case, has been assisting us with our research. Rob knows every inch of this case inside out. We spoke to him about what happened after the trials and Herzog's parole and suicide. So 2003, I actually said I got to step away from it because I was literally consumed with this. I mean, I just had bounty hunt during the day. All night I would be online looking stuff up, trying to put cases together. And then on the weekends, I'd be getting poison oak with Kim and all them. And I was just, it was consuming my entire life to where about 2003, I was like, you know, I just got to put this down for a minute. 2004, Lauren did his appeal and everything got thrown out. So he was going to be a free man. I'm sorry, sure, he probably told that part. But the 
Testa offered him a 14-year manslaughter deal on Cindy, and he took it. You know, Lauren's dummy being like, well, 78, 14, I'll take 14. Which, if he would have been smart, he'd have just said, screw you, prove it, and he'd have been off back in 2004. Because they were never, I mean, Testa knew they were never going to get him on Cindy's. Because that's all they could use. Everything else was because of Miranda. They couldn't use it. So all they had was his witness statement of Wes killing her and no physical evidence, no body, blood in Wes's car. I mean, yeah, they were never going to get Lauren not being that bright took it. As we mentioned, the trailer that Herzog was released to was in the prison grounds. Rob showed us an aerial photograph of the area and described where the trailer was positioned. So here's uh, the prison, High Desert, up in Susanville. So if you look at this one, this is the main road, and this is where you'd enter the prison. There's a gate right there that you have to go through to talk to cops or COs. And then you curve around here, and then you take this road over to where the trailer was. The trailer's not in this picture anymore, but it was right... You see the water right, towers there and the there? It's right in front of the two mm-hmm. towers. And it's right here in front, because you can see both of them, you know, right mm-hmm. behind it. So it's right outside the prison. Because what happened was is that he had to go to some county for two years, and no counties wanted him. Yeah. Kathleen went to bat for not getting him released to San Joaquin, which normally would be, because that's normally where he would go, because that's where his family's at. But that's where most of the victims were, so she fought that. And long story short, he got paroled to the other side of the fence of Susanville. So technically, he's out of prison, just on the other side of the fence. With an ankle monitor. Yeah. Right, okay. Yeah, he's got an ankle monitor, and he can't can't leave the trailer. Like, you can only leave from 8 to... Like 10.30 or something, or 11, and then he had to be back, and then he could leave after 1, then he had to be back by 5, and he had to stay there overnight. So he really limited time. But he never left anyway because that protest is from Susanville. I mean, Susanville's remote. The townspeople were like, man, we catch you in town. You're going to end up in the field, you know, because you're a serial killer. So Leonard offered to pay Sherman time for information on the location of Cindy's body. You and Leonard took a lot of heat for that, didn't you? Yeah, we took a lot of heat from that. You don't want to set a precedence to pay the bad guy for information. But how morally we went down that path is, is that we looked at it like this. If you go to somebody like John before all this and you say, what would you give up to get Cindy back? Everybody's answer was a million dollars, anything. If I won the lottery, you could have it all. So there was no end to what a person that was a victim would give up. So our thought process was, and how I explained it to John to try to get Leonard and John in the same room again, was that it's not you. He's doing it for whatever reason he wants to do it. If we get Cindy, that's all that matters. I mean, because, I mean, going back to... 98, I mean, I promised John I'd find his daughter. That's how I got involved in it. I promised him this would happen. And now I'll still make the promise. It just, it takes a while sometimes. I mean, because this started in 98. But like I said, there was a lot of people that were pissed off about that. That's why that show was, the topic of that was, is, you know, is this a good thing? Because, you know, are you setting a precedent? And again, we kind of looked at it as, number one, I knew Leonard was screwing over anyway. It was never going to happen. Number two, if we got closure, it really doesn't matter. And 
you know, how often is this going to come along? I mean, is every bad guy in the world going to come out now and be like, hey, give me some money and I'll tell you where I did whatever. But it was just a thing. I mean, we looked at it in the bounty hunting. Yeah, we're trying to find a guy that's hiding, hiding. Sometimes it's just easier to pay a family member, hey, you don't like your family member anyway. Give you 200 bucks, you can use it for Christmas. Tell us where we're at, you know, and we'll never say. So it was just a thing. So, like I said, we took a lot of heat. And then what really got it going again was, this is 2010, so he gets paroled to the property. I'm kind of back to crazy again, looking up cases and trying to figure this stuff out. Scott, who worked for the Stockton Record, wrote all the death row inmates of high-profile crimes in the Central Valley. So he wrote Ying, he wrote Wes, he wrote Scott Peterson, uh, Stainer, Kerry Stainer. He wrote all these people trying to find a story for Stockton Record. So Wes wrote him back. And in their going back and forth, mm -hmm. he brought up, hey, 10 years ago, this cowboy-looking dude was going to give me money for bodies. Is that still on the table? You know, could you contact him and see if that would, could still happen now? Because I'm on death row now. So Scott called Leonard. Leonard called me because we weren't in the same office anymore. So we sat down and, you know, of course, Leonard's like, yeah, let's do it. Let's get this going again. See what happens. I mean, because... I mean, Leonard's motivation is anything that will get him in front of a camera on the news is always there. So he's like, let's, you know, let's do it. Let's get it going. So we have this conversation with Wes. And basically, Wes says, all right, I'll make you a deal. I have 15000 in restitution. And it really gets me pissed off that when one of my fans sends me a dollar, um, I only get 50%, you know, 50 cents. 50 cents goes to restitution. If you pay the fifteen grand." I'll give you bodies. So he's like, all right, well, what bodies? What are we talking about? And he says, well, if you pay that 15 grand, I'll give you Cindy's body. I'll give you Chevy's body. I'll give you a well with 25 bodies. And I'll give you a well with 10 bodies. And so immediately we're just like, holy crap. Yeah, let's go for it. Let's do it. So then this is where I says, like kindergarten, Wes starts drawing pictures like this from his cell and it's like yeah okay where in the country am I going that looks like that and what he's trying to say is you know his driveway here's the house they built because back in 85 when nothing happened after the blood was found they destroyed that hunting cabin got rid of it and then built their big 5300 square foot house or something it's a big mansion house kind of so this is the driveway, this is the house, and then you got this little dam is what he drew, and Chino's trailer, and then Chevy's up here behind the tree. Well, the problem with this was that Chino's trailer's not there, the uh, groundskeeper guy or whatever, handyman. So the trailer's not there. The dam that he's talking about, it's not a dam. It's just like a low spot where water would fill up. I mean, they call it a dam, but when you go out there to the property, there's no dam. And so none of it made sense. Then he's like, you know, yeah, she's behind the only tree. Dude, there's like 100 trees. Come on. When you say maps, this is two years of going back and forth. And so back from 2001 to 2003, we were on this property almost every weekend, you know, because it, see, okay, so deputy on the property, after they got convicted, he went to prison. Both West's parents died. The IRS took the property and they auctioned it off. And actually, there's a guy in San Jose owns it now. He won the auction, so he owns it. 
and they never did anything with it because his wife thinks there's ghosts up there, so they just sell the property, you know. So it was always vague. We were always up and all over this place. But this didn't make sense. So then he draws this one, and again, you know, you've got Tino's trailer that's like, okay, Wes, this Tino's trailer was here in 98, and it's not here now. So there's not like a ground impression where this could be. This is a uh, the dam, but again, it's a low spot. It's not like a pond or anything else. You know, there's not, it's, it's a low spot. It's not, it's not a reservoir. There's no dam. There's nothing. And then, yeah, you've got a tree, and she's six foot behind the tree, but there's 100 trees there. You know, so it's just not, we're not getting anywhere. And then he was drawing more, and then what I was doing is I was taking the maps that he would draw and putting it with Google so that we could kind of make sense of them and kind of narrow it in. So, like I say, this went back and forth forever until December of 2011. And... Wes was never giving us anything definitive. I mean, he was always doing stuff like, well, okay, go to this road. You'll see some cattle pens on the left, which, okay, they don't exist now. So I don't know what you're talking about. Send me an aerial picture of that so that I can draw on it. And we're just doing all this back and forth for two years. December of 2011, Leonard gets pissed. And he's like, screw this. We're not going to do this anymore. It's gone on two years. I'm tired. Forget it. He confronts Wes. He just says, look, dude. You got to give us something now or we're done. It's off the table. You're not getting your 15 grand. And so Wes, at the same time, was worried that Leonard was going to screw him over and was worried that, why should I give you something without giving some money? And just anyway. So the deal in December of 2011 is I'll give you Cindy and I'll give you Chevy. You pay the 15 and then you can have the other two wells, the 25 and the 10. He says, let me see what's up here. Okay. That's, that's what it looks like today. Yeah. So this is the house. This is the house. Yeah, it's a huge house. Um, I got a lot of pictures of this house. Um, and this is the... <laughs> funny story. This is Leonard Road <laughs> that he lived on. <laughs> so the road comes down like this and then goes to one more house way back here. But this is all of Wes's property. These are the new owner's trucks that he just left up there. That's a more current picture. But anyway, so the basically the idea that Wes tells us is he says, you take those drawings I gave you, you go to the back of the house right here, you look out here to the big tree, Chevy's buried six feet behind that tree. And then on Cindy, you go to the fire road. So if I drew this picture, you've got Leonard Road, driveway, and it goes like that. This is the house. You look out, and then Chevy six foot behind the big oak tree. Over here, there's a fire road that goes all the way up here. This is according to Wes. There's a gate here. And he says, what happened was is that on the night Cindy was murdered, when Lauren did it, he went to work the next morning with her in the trunk and then said he was sick and went home at like 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock. Went into the driveway, took her out of the trunk, put her on the back of his four-wheeler, went down the driveway, down the road, up the fire road to the gate. When he got to the gate, he couldn't go any farther, so he rolled her down the hill. And wherever she stopped rolling, he just walked down there and he covered her up. And that's where she's at. So. Chevy's there, Cindy's here. And this is also 
Jeff said she was based off that conversation. And then he went out there and looked and he confirmed it, he said. So Leonard's like, well, let's go, let's go dig a hole. So we dug a hole. Was that Jeff on the left or no? No, Jeff wasn't there. Okay. No. So you dig a hole. We dug a hill behind the tree, just like you said, six foot behind the tree, crescent shaped. So, and at this point, you got to understand where we're at too. It's December 2011. There's so many red flags that we haven't talked about where we're getting the feeling that law enforcement isn't completely being honest and working with us. So we just want to go find something and call, be like, hey, there's some bones here. You know, if you want to charge us for trespassing, charge us, whatever. We don't care. Anyway, so we dug this hole. We don't find anything, there's nothing there. Dig the hole, you know, like waist deep behind the big oak tree. Don't find anything. So that night, Wes doesn't see it on the news that the remains have been found. So he calls um, the next day and he's like, hey, what happened? Now, we didn't find anything here. And this didn't even make sense because it's flat. There's no place to roll anybody down. So he called the next day and I was pissed. I mean, I was... Like, even Leonard was like, dude, he's just screwing with us. He's sitting in death row, and he's <laughs> laughing his butt off because we're up here digging holes and all this stuff. I'm like, well, you're lying. And he was really honest about it. He's, he's like, dude, why would I lie? He's like, I want that money. There's no reason why I'd lie. And I said, well, I can prove you're a liar because, number one, where the gate is, there's no hill to roll her down. And he's like, what are you talking about? It's a ravine. And I'm like, no, it's not. Wes. I've been there. I've been there a million times. Just came from there. It's flat. There is no ravine. And he's like, yeah, there is. I don't know what you're talking about. And I'm like, Wes, I, no, you're full of it. You know, slip on a fork and die slowly. I don't care at this point. I mean, this is going from 98 to 2011. I'm sick of it. And um, he goes, did you see the pond? Now I'm looking at Google Maps while I'm talking to him and the pond is up here. And I'm like, dude, that's a quarter of a mile up the road from where the gate is. He's like, no, it's not. He's like, you go to the gate, way up the road, and where the ravine is where I rolled her down, you could see the pond down there. And I'm like, no, you come off the road, gate's right there. He's like, what are you talking about? No, it's not, it's way up there. So back and forth, back and forth, and finally I'm like, all right, I gotta go. Well, it took us a while to figure out that BLM in 2001 moved the gate. And so when that happened, it was like, ah, oh, Leonard, we got a problem because He's telling the truth about the descriptive things of where the gate used to be, and we're looking over here. So if we're off here, the big oak tree, he's talking about the big oak tree in 1985. We're in 2011. That might not even exist. There was a fire in 2001 that, ah, I gotta find those pictures. Oh, that's here. Kim and I went out there in 2001. It was named the Leonard Fire. Everything burned but Wes's property. <laughs> Yeah, like the whole side, it's all black. You know, the, uh, I don't know where the video is. The one Kim did that's this video, that when they interviewed her on a &E, called Vanished, it was an hour thing. Um, we were all out there. I'm not on the video, it's just Kim, but that's when the fire was. It's, you can see it's all black behind her and stuff. Anyway, so, you know, now I'm thinking, well, did the big oak tree crash and die, you know? We get killed in the fire. I mean, who knows? We don't even know or if it's the right tree. Or maybe they don't want that tree there no more. Who knows? Who knows? So we don't know. So I said, Larry, we got to go back. So get into January. We're trying to figure out when we're going to go back up the hill and try to go with the next plan. That's when, um, I don't know the exact day, but 
Leonard call Leonard goes, let's call let's call Lauren. Let's get his phone number, call him in the trailer and harass him. So he called and when the day he called, uh, Sugar was there, his wife. And, and it was kind of funny because Leonard, I mean, you got to, well, he got to talk to him, but he's just crazy sometimes. He's like, Lauren, world famous bounty hunter, Leonard Padilla. Lauren's <laughs> like, who? He's, How do you not know world famous bounty hunter? You know, they're going back and forth. And so Lauren's like, uh, yeah, what do you want? And Leonard says, well, you know, you're supposed to be getting out in September and your old buddy Wes, man, he's telling us all these stories, you know, where you put Cindy, where you put Chevy. He told us the story about when you were driving up Flood Road. Not there, but driving up Flood Road. Um, he said, stop the car, and you got gas out of the truck, and you poured it down the well and lit it on fire. And Wes said, what are you doing? He said, I got to burn up the 25 bodies that are in that hole. And Wes laughed at you and said that wasn't going to work. And Lauren goes... Well, why is he telling you that? And he says, I don't know. Maybe once you sit next to him, just think back in late, you know, 99, you know, you ran your mouth. He ended up on death row. Now you're getting out. So, yeah, you might want to think about it. And then he's like, well, I got to go. And it was funny because while he was on the phone with Lauren and Lauren was questioning who he was, Sugar was in the background. The reason we knew it was Sugar is because... Sugar's like, is that Leonard? Leonard Padilla? I just watched a show with Casey Anthony. That's the guy with the cowboy hat. I mean, like, it gave credibility to that phone call of who Leonard was that there's somebody on the phone. So that was it. They hang up. And then it was like, okay, well, what's gonna, what's next? You know, Leonard's uh, intent was, well, let's see what happens. Let's see if he panics, cuts his ankle monitor, tries to flee, you know, whatever. So next thing that happens is the composite you know I find that and I'm just like holy crap I mean right when I saw it I was just like oh my god that's him I mean I was just I was in my head just 100% that that was him not knowing what it went to just doing google searches for missing people and it came up as a suspect and a missing person didn't know what the case was didn't even know about Michaela or anything saw the composite and I was like holy crap that's gotta be him so who is that and that's when I saw it was the Michaela case. So at first I kind of questioned it too, because I was kind of like, well, wow. I don't know. She just looks awful young. But there again, you know, big thing about missing people, you know, that's the school picture, which she probably doesn't look like on the normal day. So sent the picture to Wes, you know, is this your buddy? Oh my God, can't, you know, this is the girl. I can't deal with you. If, a kid was killed, blah, blah, blah. He comes back with, in the letter, I was Lauren, he was seeing his sister, I had nothing to do with it, on and on. I looked up his sister. So we had just called Lauren a few days before that. Nothing happened where he did anything. Then I found the composite. I go to Leonard, I show him. He's like, oh my God. Of course, what's he do? He gets the media down there. That's what gets Kevin involved. That's what, there's this media storm of holy crap. This guy probably killed this missing girl back in 88 in Hayward. And there's all this fury on it in the news. So then we make the call to Lauren, the second call. And when Lauren, he's just like, hello. And he's, and Leonard just starts right in. He's like, Lauren, 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 you know, what the hell's wrong with you? That poor little girl, nine-year-old, are you serious? What's wrong with you? And Lauren's like, what? What are you talking about? 
So you know what I'm talking about. Rob found this composite. I'm telling you 100%, that's you. That, there's no question in my mind that's you. Your buddy confirmed it's you, that's you. And he's like, oh, 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 I don't know what you're talking about. He's like, the one from Hayward, the nine-year-old. Dude, I gotta get you a lawyer. I gotta get you a lawyer right now, because it's gonna get hot. It's gonna hit, like, fire on the news, and you're supposed to get out in September. You're not getting out now, I guarantee it. And Lauren just got real quiet, and he goes, I gotta get off the phone. That was it. And then that's the day that he killed himself. That was that day. If you would like to hear more from Rob Dick, you can listen to his podcast, Human Hunters, where he gives you a first-hand account of his work on the Speed Freak Killers. In our next episode, we will be hearing more from Frank, along with some other current and ex-law enforcement, about the police department around this time. <laughs>